Hello, welcome to Behind the Movement. My name is Kyle Fincham. My guest today is Natalia Melman Petrizella. I have to say it's really wonderful to be back at the podcast. That long break was needed, but I am so refreshed and nourished by these conversations. Um, and I, I, I'm excited about all the people I'm going to be speaking with coming up. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. And this conversation with Natalia was, was, was so excellent. So I'm excited to share this with you. Um, I just got back from London, where I had the privilege of teaching uh, alongside an amazing, amazing cast of teachers for the Ferris Anime Terra Nova um, Intensive. It's a two-week intensive in London. Um, and also the, the group that they brought together was just so energized and excited and, and um, at the same time focused and playful. It was just such a great experience. So I want to thank everybody who was there. Um, Louis, Sam, uh, Tina, um, Cameron, and uh, Tomislav, who invited me out there to teach. Um, it was just wonderful. And like I said, the, the group who was there was great. So if any of you are listening, teachers or attendees, um, thank you for, for making me feel so welcome and, and making it a special week. I've got some more Infinite Play things happening. As always, you can just go to letsinfiniteplay.com to, to get more information. Um, I guess the one worth noting is that uh, I'm teaching in Berlin at the end of September. I think it's September 30th and October 1st. It's a Saturday and Sunday, and there's early bird pricing happening right now. Um, and I think it runs until September 4th. So if you want to uh, save a little bit on that, um, that's how you do it. Just sign up before September 4th. Um, but there's a whole mess of other things if you want to stay up on classes and workshops, retreats, etc. Um, it's all at letsinfiniteplay.com. Um, you can also email me through the website, um, or you can send me an email directly. It's just theinfiniteplayguy at gmail.com. Uh, love having conversations, love having some back and forth. I don't always respond very quickly, um, but I, I, I always do get back. So yeah, be in touch. As I said, my conversation today is with Natalia Melman Petruzella, and this was absolutely uh, a treat. Um, Natalia is so knowledgeable and presents and shares in such a, a um, engaging and enthralling way, and I, I just had such a wonderful time getting to be in this conversation. Um, if you're not familiar with Natalia, let me give you a little bit of her bio here. She is a historian of contemporary American politics and culture. She's the author of Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture, and the book Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. She's the co-producer and host of the acclaimed podcast, Welcome to Your Fantasy, and the co-host of Past Present Podcast. She's a frequent media guest expert, public speaker, and contributor to outlets including the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and the Atlantic. 
Natalia is Associate Professor of History at the New School, co-founder of the Wellness Education Program, Health Class 2.0, and a premier leader of the mind-body practice Intensati. Her work has been supported by the Spencer, Whiting, Rockefeller, and Mellon Foundations. She holds a BA from Columbia and a PhD from Stanford, and lives with her husband and two children right here in New York City. Uh, before speaking with her, I started reading the book Fit Nation, and highly recommend it. Um, super fascinating, uh, really well thought out, and just with her background in in history, it's just there's a lot of historical context to the to the 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 topic she's digging into, and it's uh, it's as it's as engaging as the conversation. I would just say that. So highly recommend it. And with all that said, let's get to the conversation. This is my chat with Natalia Melman Petruzella. So the reason I invited you on is I have a very close friend. So I took a break from the podcast for like nine months. And I'd recorded okay. about 110 episodes and I put it out there to the world that I was like, I want to bring it back. Who are people that I should have on? And one of my very closest friends recommended you because he'd listened to you. And I, I want to say conspirituality. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Thank you. Who's your friend? Do I know your friend or he just heard me on there? Yeah, I don't think you know him. I think he's just heard you on there. And I asked him, I said, oh, had you if he had read the book and he said he hadn't, but he'd listened to you. I guess maybe you were on more than once. I think I've, I've been on like four times. I was like one of their first guests, actually, because Derek and I used to teach back to back at Equinox. And that's how I knew him. And then he had a podcast. I'm like, sure, I'll come on your little podcast. And now it's like this a massive thing. So yeah, I've been on like, I think like four times or so. Oh, so interesting. And he's a big fan of it. And he was like, oh, you got to you got to have her on. And I started reading your book. So I got like a, a good chunk into it. And I see why that you were on there. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, there's something that you were getting to, at least in the book that got me thinking about something that I feel like I saw emerge mostly during COVID, but I feel like it's been there before, but this idea, I don't know if it's called the halo effect or whatever it is, but the idea of like kind of looking to people and they're very, they know a lot about one thing. So we decide that they know a lot about a lot of things and the fitness kind of guru or movement gurus are like especially during COVID seemed to be like a real embodiment of that. Totally. Um, yeah. So I think the halo effect is an interesting way to think about that because mm -hmm. it also brings in like the moral aspect, right. Of like your virtue at like doing all things fitness, right. Which I think is a piece of it. But I think what you're pointing to like highlights a kind of complicated relationship in America and in this industry with expertise, where on the one hand, we want to say like, well, this is true because this person with a doctorate and some letters after their name told it to me. But we often like almost accept people's expertise in like one thing about things that they really have no business being expert on. I mean, one thing that I always mentioned when I was teaching fitness a lot more, I would be asked to like comment for like some article about like good cardio moves or something. And they'd want to put Natalia Petrosella PhD. And I would always say no. And they're like, but you have a PhD. I'm like, my PhD is in history. Like I have like the group fitness certification that I got in a weekend in the basement of like a New York sports club. Like I'm not a PhD in this, you know? And I think that that's really interesting. And then I think in the fitness world too, there's a particularly fraught relationship to all of this because 
you know, there are lots of certifications and you can get a degree in exercise science, but there, those aren't requirements to like be in the space, especially online. So you get this kind of like messy situation. I think especially because with fitness, people like wear it on their bodies so much where expertise, yeah, sometimes that can be useful to have degrees, but a lot of people, peop, a lot of times people are sort of using their own quote unquote journey to resist traditional forms of expertise and be like, well, I know because look at these abs. I know because look at my handstand. Right. And I think that like, I understand why that's attractive, but I'm very, very skeptical of being like, just because that diet or workout plan worked for you, I should believe it works for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And it seems like <clears throat> at least what you, what I was gathering with you were writing is like, there's also a historical track record there where like oh, yeah. we started like that, like a, a certain type of body was indicative of like a lot of other qualities in a person. For a hundred percent. And we see that today and historically too. And one of the things that was so interesting to me historically is like, what that physical body signifies has really changed a lot over time. So like I talk about like in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, there really was this like celebration of fat bodies, not too fat, I should say. Like be, there was still people who were like morbid, what we would call morbidly obese were laughed at. Mm -hmm. But this idea of looking like you have leisure time, like you have access to rich caloric foods, like that was attractive. And I talk about, um, you know, in the 1890s, there are these like fat gentle Men's clubs and they literally describe them in news reports as like the bony, skinny laborers like look on as these like rotund, like jolly fat cats gather in a bar. And there you have positive associations about, oh, this guy must work hard. He must be really smart. He deserves his wealth. That's associated with fatness. It's almost the opposite of today, how we associate with, with fatness. And just to add like, you know, once I get into the examples, I like can't stop. But I think like in terms of what we consider like fit muscular bodies, that's changed a lot lot too, like um, kind of the early strong men and women who were into lifting weights, like they had to contend for decades with the idea that muscles meant you were quote unquote muscle bound, basically imprisoned by your muscles, that you were an idiot because you couldn't obviously have a sophisticated intellect if you were spending your time on your body and your muscles. And today, I mean, we still have a little bit of that, I think, like the meathead idea and like certain big bulky bodies are considered to, you know, maybe like have a lower class um, connotation to them in some ways. But today you see somebody with like visible muscles who looks like they train, they work out. So often we go towards a sort of positive moral association. Oh, they must work really hard. They must be really disciplined. They must be really healthy. And that's really shifted a lot over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think about um, a conversation I had here on the podcast years and years ago and the, the, the guy who I was talking to, this guy, Matan, who's a dancer in Vienna, was saying that like, and, th and maybe this is something that emerges in movement culture, but I'm now I'm feeling pretty certain it's probably emerges in fitness culture, that there's this like sense that like, because you do this thing, you're a better person. Totally. And he yeah. was, and, and at the time, I think he said something like, you know, my wife doesn't do movement the way that I do. She's a dentist mm -hmm. and she's lovely. Yeah, totally. We have such, and it's interesting. He's, is he from Vienna or is he American or he's German or no, he's actually or Austrian I rather. Wanna, I want to say he, no, he's actually from Israel and lives in Vienna. Fascinating. So I only claim expertise on the United States, but I think that a lot of this, like we live in a global transnational world. So a lot of it applies more broadly, but yeah, definitely. Like I think in the U S where we have this romance about like 
the self-made man or woman and like self-fashioning, like fitness takes on that moral virtue a lot because it's such an example of like bootstrapping and individualism. Like, you know, you can't blame anyone else for not taking responsibility over your body. Like people like to think that. And so therefore those who look like they take responsibility over their body and exercising, we tend to have these positive associations with them. And it's interesting again, because like I said, that really changed over time before the 70s or so, for the most part, somebody who spent time exercising was actually seen as suspicious. Like you're not focusing on important things. You're narcissistic. Like why are you hanging out, working on your body when you should be doing more cerebral things if you're a man um, or engaging in like sport, which is competitive, not about like this like individualistic sort of like solitary thing that's about appearance. Or for a woman, why would you want to do anything rigorous that could compromise your femininity or your fertility, like that's weird. And I think, you know, there's so many examples, like specific examples of how this plays out and how this shift happens. But one thing that was really interesting to me is I read a ton of the literature around jogging and running in like the seventies and like early 1980s. And there are a couple books that like really like blew open the notion of jogging for Americans. And we're like, everybody should do this. It's so great. And one of the things that was really fascinating in one of these books is they're like, you know, yes, your heart health will be better. Yes, you'll probably lose some weight. Yes, this is like a fun way to get outside. But you know what the best part is? Walking down the street and feeling superior to all those fat smokers who aren't doing what you're doing every day. And they really, I'm paraphrasing, but that's literally what they say, like gloating over the others, that sense of superiority. You exercise, you're a better person. And so as a historian, it's been fascinating to like think to take that idea that you mentioned that I think we all kind of know is with us, but be like, where did this come from? Where in the sources does it show up? How did we learn this? You know, and this research has been really fruitful in showing us. And do you feel like there's like then kind of with COVID rolling through and all these different conversations emerging about like health and wellness that like it's kind of changed the conversation or added to that conversation? Yes. Um, yes to all of it. So I think COVID has really intensified and accelerated a lot of what I'm talking about. Like, you know, um, on the, I think COVID has really, in terms of what we started off talking about in terms of expertise, I think that COVID really, unfortunately, amplified some of the more negative skepticism of like received authority and experts on health and really, really amplified, you know, people who were like, don't listen to the CDC or the WHO or big pharma. Like they don't know what's right. I know, listen to me. And with some pretty crazy, I would say, um, uh, remedies for what, what um, people should do in order to be healthy and be fit. And I say that, by the way, as somebody who is very skeptical of a lot of our public health guidance. I mean, two-year-olds must wear masks in America, but nowhere else in the world. Like that doesn't make sense. Like there's a lot that didn't make sense. So I'm not saying we should take these authorities um, uncritically, but I think in terms of what we're talking about, absolutely COVID kind of like amplified this sense that like we should listen to these like almost charismatic leaders who are outside of these uh, institutions. And that's where this information should come from. And because that's been such a part of fitness culture for so long, there were like all these folks who were like at the ready and ready to fill that that void. Um, in terms of like this other stuff about like moralizing about the body. Yeah. I mean that moralizing. Okay. So backing up in the United States today, but always people who do regular exercise as a kind of form of leisure 
tend to be more affluent. There are a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that exercise has tended to be marketed to people who have sedentary jobs during the day. So now that's changing because there are a lot of sedentary jobs that are blue collar, but for a long time, those were office jobs versus like manual physical laboring jobs. So you had like, it was like a kind of bougie thing to go to a health club, to go jogging. like, um, And so I think that in some ways we saw that intensified during COVID because we had people who were white collar workers become the kind of laptop class, right? And so the messaging to people who are working from home, who are not moving was like, get on your Peloton, go for a hike, like do all of this stuff. And meanwhile, there are DoorDash workers, Amazon workers who are like out in the world, not necessarily getting healthy exercise. Like that's a lot of like repetitive use, repetitive movement and stuff. But we we saw an intensification of that. And I think that was really sad is that because exercise is so privatized in this country, people who have access to movement, which we should all have access to, tend to be more affluent people too. Who can afford a Peloton? Who has room in their house to like even do a free YouTube video? Who lives near a park that's well lit where they can go running? So I think COVID has really re-inscribed like a lot of this stuff. And what comes out of that inequality is a lot of our same moralizing of like, oh, you must care about your health because you work in a, you know, run every day when there are a lot of reasons people might not be doing that. Yeah, it makes me think like, you know, before we got on the call, I was saying that like my approach to movement and the direction I was heading to changed. And mm-hmm. for many reasons, but I do remember at one point being at a, a, like a large scale movement event and looking around the room and feeling like everybody kind of looked the same. And that among many things were reasons why I was like, I, I need to think a little more critically about this, but you're, you're touching on that a little bit here with like accessibility mm-hmm. and yeah. And, and who gets their hands on this and, and at what level and what knowledge and what kind of experience. Totally. And I'm really like ambivalent about this whole thing because on the one hand, we are living in a moment when community is so lacking, right? And so I am like, I love that people walk into a yoga class or a spin class or whatever. And yeah, they've paid $30 for it and that knocks out so much of our population. But you know what? It's really great. People are coming together. Any people are coming together for the most part to like be in, community and be off their screens and all the rest. On the other hand, yeah, I think it's really concerning that a lot of these spaces kind of like replicate very homogeneous environments. There can be some really troubling power dynamics in a lot of these spaces when there are these kind of guru figures who attain, I think, um, you know, I don't want to say unearned power, but sometimes unchecked power over people who follow them. I mean, when you're talking about being in a big room of people, I was going to go in a slightly different direction. And I was thinking of like, you know, some of these really terrible uh, revelations that have come out of the yoga world where people would go to these like, you know, 200, the thousand people trainings and like the guru leader is walking around doing adjustments and he's actually like inappropriately touching people in the sight of many, many other people. But because it's body work, because there's this power dynamic, often these victims, I'll call them, are like, wait, is something going wrong here? Should I be grateful for this attention? Are these just my hangups that, you know, I'm like not on board with whatever's going on? There's so many people in this room. If something was amiss, like surely like they would say something, it must be me. And so I think like, you know, I'm always like very celebratory of movement communities, but also aware of how they can cultivate some like not so great dynamics, particularly around like unchecked power of charismatic leaders. Mm-hmm. It's one of these things too where, and I bring it up often and I, I wonder 
regularly, like what does movement exercise and honestly, like most forms of education look like if there wasn't a profit to be made on it? Like if it was just like ancient wisdom that we knew we wanted everybody in our community to have because it strengthened our community, what would that, what does that actually look like? Well, we have, you know, I explore in the book, like a version or a test case of that in some ways. I don't know so much about ancient wisdom, but in terms of a public commitment to what I call movement on people's own terms, which I think is important. I'm a huge exercise booster, but I'm not here to be like, you need to do the rope climb and you need to like run a mile. And like, that's what you need to do because I say so. But I think like people having access to move on their own terms is really, really important to a healthy polity in a healthy society. So what does that look like? Well, I talk a lot about like in many ways, like the failed promise of public physical education in our country. That really is the space, I think, where this stuff should be happening. I mean, most kids and most people in America will first encounter exercise through public schools, through PE, which is required as I think still in every single state. Sadly, for a whole bunch of reasons, PE is if you're like a jock and athletic to most kids feels like kind of a waste of time or like just like fun games, um, which is not the fun games are great, but like a lot of them think it's like kind of a waste. And if you're a kid who's not athletically inclined, many kids are still totally traumatized by it, you know? And I think that that is so unfortunate. And to me, like a real a community where, or like a, a society in which we didn't have a profit motive guiding our commitment to realize the potential of exercise for every single American, it would start with really investing in like amazing PE in public schools. And then I think an extension of that or just as important would be like community recreation spaces. I mean, these have been places that are defunded or highly segregated throughout our history. And I can't remember if it's in my book, but there's wonderful work that's done on like, for example, the segregation of public pools in the United States for years. I mean, there were cities, towns that buried their pools rather than desegregate them. They were so opposed to black people being in the pool at all or with white kids that they would literally bury their swimming pool. Nobody gets to have it. And I think that that's a very dramatic example, although one that existed, you know, in the United States. Um, But I think that like we really have a kind of segregated an unequal environment around access to like nice green spaces where people can go the whole family can go and walk around a truck and there's a skate park and you know what I mean? And there's clean bathrooms and all of that. So I think that's like really, really important to think about. And that got way worse in COVID. Talk about COVID intensifying things. I mean, we heard a lot, depending what news you watch about like, you know, people protesting outside gyms, like let me in, like, you know, that, that the shutdowns were damaging the fitness industry, which they absolutely were. But I also think it's important to realize that a lot of those private businesses were allowed to open and operate far earlier than the yellow tape was taken off of playgrounds, then PE was brought in back, like, you know, not on Zoom. And so to me, that like private public divide is one that COVID has made a lot worse around fitness and lots of things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you talked about it in like uh, PE classes, right? Like if you're like a jock, you can get that can be a really exciting time for you. And then for a lot of other people it can be really non-exciting time. And this is kind of like the world where I think a lot about, because I care deeply about like non-competitive movement and Mm non-competitive play and like the, the consequences of like making everything competitive 
and like the judgment totally. that comes in that. And I feel like there's like a, a, a lot of kids who, and adults, obviously, who get turned away or, or not interested because of like the competitiveness of it. Hi, that's me. I mean, like, even though I'm like, spend more time than I would have ever thought thinking about and doing exercise today. I mean, I was totally alienated by PE. I actually found group fitness because I got a like an excuse to get out of PE, which I found so humiliating to do like supervised group exercise. I found step aerobics in 1995, like never looked back. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I think that you're absolutely right. And one thing that was fascinating for me to uncover and looking at this history is that the PE boosters in like the 1950s and 60s, which is really where we had probably our biggest uh, public commitment to, to um, physical education, they actually defined PE as everything you're saying, recreational, non-competitive, inclusive for everybody. And fascinatingly, they defined it against organized sport. Like people so often like group those together, but all of these like hardcore phys ed boosters were like, no, 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 no. It's actually really bad if a high, if a community has too much of elite sports because kids get afflicted by, wait for it, spectator-itis. What is spectator-itis? It's the idea that unless you're really good, you belong in the stands cheering other people on. And they said PE should attack that principle at its core and should say movement and fitness is for everybody and will create inclusive environments. To me, that's like radical and exciting. Unfortunately, it didn't really happen. And so the next kind of, not literally the next chapter in the book, but the sort of like next era that I found, again, really surprising is that I interviewed all these people who kind of made it big in the 80s when we had like a real big boom in private fitness. And a lot of them, more than I expected, had come up through physical education programs like in college. And they were either working as PE teachers or like on that track when like all of a sudden there were all these jobs in private industry. I kind of assumed, oh, well, they went to private industry because you could like make a lot more money. And that is kind of true. But so many of them, and I was so really touched, talked about the fact that, you know, they were doing PE. It was underfunded. PE teachers get no respect. And really to the point we're making, they kept seeing that all it did was reproduce the same hierarchies around athleticism and exercise. They were like the kids who probably needed this most had a note to sit on the sidelines. And then the jocks like got in there and dominated it. It didn't change anyone's sense of movement and what they were capable of. And they were like in this other kind of private world. Yeah, there are like barriers around cost and stuff. But we saw, especially women who, and then gay men were a huge part of this too, who like had, were always like kind of alienated in a lot of PE environments, really coming to be leaders in this movement space. And to me, I was like, Wow, I did not think of that. And that is like really, really interesting. So yeah, I think like all of that is kind of part of where how we got to where we are today. Yeah, it's um I I, I think a lot about this uh author Alfie Cohn. I don't know if you've ever read him, but like yeah. the 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 I read no contest in this idea of kind of like the the repercussions of like making everything competitive. Totally. Totally. It's so this notion of like a zero sum game for everything, especially something so fundamental as exercise and movement. 
I mean, it's disgusting. And I'm like a kind of competitive person. And I think there's like a competitive sports can be great. And I, especially as a woman, my God, like, you know, I don't want to go back to a time when girls were told like, oh no, it's just about the community and we don't play to win. And that's not ladylike. Like there should be elite sports, I think for in our culture, that's good. But that's such a small portion of people who can participate in those environments. We really do a disservice by focusing on that so much and ignoring or devaluing like the much more everyday experience of exercises that we could be creating, you know? Yeah. And you also talk about like in your book, like the fear of like feminization and also of like masculinization, um, which to me I see as this like tragedy because like when we're talking like about a, a, a holistic uh, human experience, really, mm-hmm. it is both. It is both sides. And to like be like, oh, like we want like men and boys to kind of have this one experience and like women and girls to have this other experience when it's like, oh, like men can, can and, and should dance and women can and should um roughhouse lift weights or yeah totally i mean it's so fascinating that was like one of the parts of my book that i'm like oh i feel like this sounds like repetitive but these themes keep coming up again and again and like this kind of like deep anxiety about what exercise will do to convention ide- conventional ideas about gender is everywhere and it often shows up in like really kind of contradictory ways or at least certainly ways that change over time and as i was saying before like you know for really like well into the 1970s, like to the extent that Arnold Schwarzenegger is still dealing with this and having a comment on it in the 70s, but well into the 1970s, the notion that a man who exercises regularly, not for sports, especially who lift who lifts weights, that the notion was that he must be, he was like sexually suspicious. Like he probably was gay. He cares too much what he looks like. He's not playing sports. He's doing this like weird lonesome thing. He has to go to these sweaty underground gyms to hang out with other guys. Physique magazines at that time, you know, were like displaying all these like naked men basically, or like almost nude men. And by the way, these were places where in moments of great homophobia, gay men did come together. So it's not like it was completely imagined, but the fear about the fact that exercise and lifting in particular was feminizing was everywhere. And I think people find that really surprising today because like, who's more like alpha than Schwarzenegger or some like big Jack dude. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, and that, that was something that was constructed over time. And I think that one of the things that kind of changes also that's worth thinking about is like, you know, it was like, Intrinsic to being a kind of quote unquote normal man was spending your time on cerebral matters, not on bodily matters. And so someone who spent so much time exercising was seen as not appropriately masculine. And this gets translated into a lot of other things about bodily care, like around dieting too. Something I found really interesting was like, you know, there was this big concern in the 1950s that these men who were working office jobs were too sedentary and they were um, getting heart disease. And that had to do with like them eating these fatty foods and this kind of like, it's like a, the era of American abundance, right? They're eating steaks and all of this. And it was considered unmanly 
to worry about nutrition. So you'd read in these women's magazines how women should quietly cut the fat off the steak in the kitchen, like covertly be like, oh, we should walk today rather than take the car because you want your man to be healthy and to take care of his body, but no right thinking man would do that. And that is everywhere. Like one other article that really struck me. So um, Lyndon Johnson, when he was Senator, not when he was president yet, there's an article that his wife writes and it's kind of like a PSA type of thing. And she talks about like, you know, my husband used to eat like burgers and cigarettes and coffee, like two meals a day because he's so busy. And of course that's what men do. But, you know, now he realized after having a heart attack scare that he has to sort of like eat vegetables and like count calories a little bit, but you know, it's like counting baseball stats or like, and you know, and they have to like man it up Mm -hmm. in a way that um, is really kind of fascinating. And I think a little bit incomprehensible today when like men's health is like get ripped abs and like grill for your family. You know, it's like we have a different version of masculinity. And similarly with women, um, I think it's a little bit more expected, but lots of concerns about bulking up, about being too competitive, about not being graceful. Um, and then later on, I think um being like uh there was there's like and I think we still have this like concern about like women being too vain, right? We have this caricature of like, oh, like, you know, women should care about their appearance, but oh, look at that silly lady going to her yoga class with her Lululemon pants. So it's like really kind of like hard to um dis- disentangle. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also really n- took note, I have to say like, like the the historical references are like powerful throughout your book um which are which gives so much context um but there's one point in there and i forget who who said it or where you got the research but the idea that like there was even people who were talking about like not just doing fitness but they were also saying like oh people should be like gardening and building things and like I forget where it it was. In oh, are you talking about like john dewey and the education yeah. piece like in the early 20th century yeah Tell me what you you want me to just comment on that or I I like it because it's something that like, I think people forget. I think that people forget that the reason fitness and exercise exists is because we've developed into like this society of like abundance, which has come out of like technology. So like we have all these amazing things that have come, but the repercussions is that we're actually just not moving as much as we've biologically evolved to. And right. And I think about um, Katie Bowman's work. Um, she wrote the book, Move Your DNA, and she wrote Move yeah. Matters and so many things And her, just like, I'm, I'm drawing a big circle here in the, in the air. And this is movement. And like, there's this little tiny circle up in the corner or not, there's no corner of a circle, but like in a little part of a circle, that's just, that's exercise within this giant movement circle. Yeah, like, totally. That someone was thinking about that at that time being like, exercise is just a piece. Oh, right. So yeah. So there are at least two things going on there. So one piece I think which is most related is not what I thought about John Dewey, though I'll get to that in a second. It, But it is this paradox, what I call the paradox of prosperity, that in the United States, so much of what the U.S. kind of like transmits to the world and with particular energy in moments like the Cold War, where we have to be like, we are the best, is like America America is abundant and we have leisure. And like you say, that was abetted really in the kind of post-World War II period and through today by technology, right? Like we have cars, we have dishwashers, we have like um, washing machines, we have frozen food, we have micro 
microwaves. Like we have all of these things that make our life easier. And that signifies American superiority. We don't need to be out in the field. We don't need to like ration one piece of bread for dinner because you could buy 10 packs of 15 different brands of bread and it's fine. And that's supposed to show how strong America is. Now, that has a real big problem in it, which is that all of those things have bodily costs, right? And so I write about this wonderful woman, um, Bonnie Pruden, who was a, ho- a homemaker, although that like doesn't do her justice, in White Plains, New York in the 40s and 50s. And she's noticing this. She's like, all of these like good life things that we have here in the suburbs mean we're not moving, right? We are like biking to the train or like, sorry, driving to the train station and sitting inside with our big TV that we're so proud to have and not running around outside. And so she talks about how like, you know, movement, not just deliberate exercise, is kind of being like sucked out of the fabric of daily life for the people who are supposed to have it all. And so that's a really important moment in terms of like, like you're saying, seeing exercise, not just as like this hour a day, but something that ideally should be integrated into the fabric of so many aspects of life, but which modern life actually, like we've deliberately stripped it out because we're like, ew, physical labor. Like why do that when it's easier? Like why walk there when you could have the golf cart? Like all of that. So I think that that's really important to think about and still like attention um, that we live with today. But the earlier thing I thought you you were mentioning, which I think is important too, is like, So there's this very famous educational thinker, John Dewey, who was a philosopher in the beginning of the 20th century. And he is what people call the father of progressive education. Like, and his idea was like, a real good education does not involve children sitting in rows, only getting their knowledge from books, a good education involves engaging with the world. And I think this is really important. Um, and seeing the body not as something to be disciplined in order to learn, but seeing the body as integral to being integrated in any kind of educational experience. I still get chills mm. thinking about that idea and how much that could transform our schools. And so he was really, uh, he was a guy who was like, yeah, we should be learning science through gardening and like seeing how things grow. We should be learning, you know, about cultures through doing their dances, like all of this kind of stuff. And in some ways, like progressive education is everywhere today. Like that's something like my kids go to a progressive school and lots of those um Lots of those like ideas, like even sitting in a circle as opposed to in rows, have been integrated into classrooms that don't even call themselves progressive. But I think the movement piece, we have not embraced in the way that we should. We still have this division in the educational profession. And I used to be like a middle school teacher. We're like, oh, the PE teacher, like that's not like a real teacher. That's not a real class. Like athletics and academics, those things are totally separate. And there's some reasonable reasons for doing that. But I think it's such a missed opportunity, especially for kids to not take away from academic learning, but enhance all kinds of learning by integrating movement as just like a normal part of it, you know? Yeah. Because I mean, as, as I said before, like our bodies have like biologically evolved and they haven't caught up to like all the technology and they won't happen in our lifetime right. or the next 10 lifetimes. And, yeah. yeah. And we're left in this place where it's like, we have this thing that we exist in that is in its, in its holistic sense, our tool for communicating with the world. And when it's not yeah. being used, it's, it's, it's not being nourished. And as a matter of fact, like it's often malnourished. Because like it, totally. it, it's, it's still it's still asking to do that through the nervous system. Yeah, and I think what's such a um a 
central contradiction of like how we live is like, on the one hand, like a big intellectual shift that I trace in the book, cultural shift too, is like, we do as a society generally embrace the idea that mind and body are connected. Like we have moved past that era of like, oh, if you're working on your body, you must be an idiot. Like we think that these things are integrated and we think that health or wellness is more than the absence of illness. Um, like we believe that, right? And I think we also believe that people should take initiative to enhance that by going out and moving and all of the rest. However, so much of our daily life and our society and even our quote unquote innovation is not set up to help make that happen. I mean, I think like it, to me, it's such an interesting contradiction that we are obsessed with like labor saving devices. Like what will make this easier, right? Well, everything to make something easier, more efficient, which I get. At the same time that we're also obsessed with like, what's the hardest workout? What's like, how can I like work my body the hardest in this specific period of time? Well, in all the other aspects of my life, I'm like, oh, can I like sit on a lawnmower instead of push it? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like there's this tension between like um, wanting to like knowing you should move your body and needing to do that and wanting to sort of like strip out those much more mundane experiences of movement, whether it's walking or pushing a lawnmower or hand washing dishes or whatever. And I don't say that because I glorify like the old days. I do not think the old days were great. And, you know, it was mostly women washing those dishes and yeah. doing all that. But I think that like, it is something to think about. Mm -hmm. There's also something in there around kind of like the workifying of everything that everything is, is, is to be a job or to be at work. And, and it's like tied into like the, the grind culture as well. Totally. Totally. Right. Right. I think that's, that's really true. And also like to the kind of like class aspect of it, like I was joking around, I think like, I mean, it must've been a while ago because we haven't had snow in New York for so long, but that um, it, there was some issue where like, usually there's someone who shovels the sidewalk near where we are and this guy like couldn't come and so the neighbor was kind of complaining about it and i was like hey were you and i are like dressed to go to the gym we should just like call it like the new snow shoveling workout like mm -hmm. excellent for core we should like charge people to come and do this and we'll lead it and i think it's really kind of like speaks to that right if it's like labor that you have to do because oh you have to shovel snow we kind of de de demean that right mm -hmm. but if it's like a new innovative workout that takes like functional fitness like to a new level, then we, then, you know, among a certain class, it tends to have like a higher status. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think about like, um, you know, it's like various like old kind of philosophical standpoints of just being like, when you wake up and just do what needs to be done. And it's just, how do you mean? Like that, like, um, rather than the always kind of like planning of like, well, I have to get this thing and I have to do that thing, or should I go here? Or should I go there? But like the idea that like there was a period and, and trying to find it now is much harder, but the idea where you'd wake up and be like, oh, well, what has to be done today? What is the mm -hmm. thing that's being called to? Oh, the garden has to be taken care of. Oh, well, that's what, mm -hmm. that's what I will go and, and, and work on. Oh, like mm -hmm. today is a day where like hunting has to happen or some gathering has to happen. So like, that's what I will go and do today. And there's, um, privilege of choice that we have now, but the choice is like super um, challenging and debilitating and also leaves us like when we want to make our choices, I think sometimes looking to being like, oh, well, what am I seeing online that leads me to like what seems to be the like uh, the best choice or the choice that's going to get the most likes in some way. 
Oh, interesting. Right. So that like our imperatives for choosing how we spend our time uh, have one become broader, but like maybe been per- become more perverse in certain ways in terms of like what we're getting out of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's true. And of course that differs because I think like we're speaking from a perspective of like some privilege, right. Of being able to have this like range of choices of what you do. I think that to the extent we're talking about movement, like, of course, most Americans get up every day and like, don't have that choice. So like, shit, I got to get my kid to school and then I got to get to work and et cetera. And I think that to the extent we're talking about movement, like a lot of those required activities don't necessarily have the benefit of, yeah, getting that thing done, but also having some salutary effect on your body, right? Like it's, you're not like a lot of people can't live close enough to like walk their kid to school. We live in a car culture. So they're driving their kid to school. They don't have access or time to like make a healthy meal. So they're picking up food that's not very healthy. So yeah, I think the musts, I think the musts of many people's daily lives and some of them, I'm sure yours and mine too, like are sometimes like you have to work really hard to like be healthy too, because those are not going to abet your health in any way. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this question of like, what is healthy? Um, Which is super interesting. Um, And I haven't read your whole book, but I am guessing that there's a place where it gets to, uh, it feels like it's headed in some direction towards there. Um, But I'm, it's, you mentioned it as well like you know like the kind of hyper individualist approach to to movement and fitness and i've talked to many people and i've felt it myself at times where i was you know training six hours a day and being very by myself people inviting me to lunch or or a coffee and not going and doing it not having the conversation mm-hmm. not spending time with people doing what we're doing right now and these are all aspects of like a, a healthy lifestyle and i think that there's right. something in there that is also being lost in this kind of like uh, fit nation thing. Oh, totally. I mean, something that I'm really passionate about, um, as much as the word wellness has been sort of like bastardized and like devoid of its meaning because it's like a product in many ways, I absolutely think that we need to think of wellness or health in a kind of holistic way and not merely the absence of illness. But this is about, yes, physical health, emotional health, mental health, social health, which I think is so important. I mean, you started off bringing up some COVID related issues, which I think are very salient to this. But, you know, I had a lot of opinions, honestly, about the way that I felt that in certain environments, our sort of obsession with avoiding COVID was causing some real collateral damage in terms of like broader health outcomes, right? Like, obviously, we don't want to be spreading COVID, but I'm like, we also have to think years in, really, as some of these mitigations continued, of what the costs are of isolation, of not seeing each other's faces, of excluding certain people from spaces because of vaccine mandates that not everybody is on board with. Like, And so, um, and those are hard conversations to have. And I think they were really hard to have during COVID because that was understandably such a huge part of our health landscape. But I was I couldn't believe, I mean, I couldn't believe what you were talking about at the beginning, the way some of these like wellness people went off into like full on conspiracism. Like I could kind of believe it, but I would kind of couldn't believe I was seeing it in front of my eyes. But then I also couldn't believe that other folks who I often thought had a very sort of like rational context based approach to um, like political and social health 
were so fixated on COVID prevention above all else that I think that they were kind of like missing the larger picture of some of the other damages that came from um, making those mitigations like front and center. And I wrote about that and I talked about that. And it was honestly probably the most like politically risky thing I've ever done because a lot of people that I really agree with on that, we didn't see eye to eye on those particular issues, which is okay. Like intellectual health is part of like debating and like not just like closing your ears when you hear something that you don't agree with, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's also been like a big challenging piece of uh, this era. Silos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the, the ability to like pick and choose the information you want, I guess, you know? that's Oh, totally. I mean, that is like the big issue of our time, right? The segmentation of the media environment. I'm actually going on a podcast later today called Unsiloed, which I think is about uh, trying to break down those barriers a little bit. But yeah, um, it's a real problem. Like you can't, there's so much volume of information out there, like volume, I mean, amount, not, not like volume level, although that too, that you can just... You could all day read things that only confirm what you agree with. And you'd be like, but there's so much out there. Everybody agrees with me, right? Mm -hmm. And no, lots of people don't. There are other people in totally other echo chambers having very much the same experience. And I think what's really hard is like, I think everyone agrees that's a really bad thing. But then I think we have some real considered disagreements, which I don't have the answer to, about like which perspectives should be allowed into the public space sphere or public square to discuss like and i think it's like a real issue like i don't think we should be legitimizing like full-on freaking fascists and like nazis and misogynists to be like part of that debate as like reasonable folks on the other hand you know there's some extreme examples of that i think most people would agree like don't belong are not good faith interlocutors on the other hand like when you start being like no 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 you can't come in it becomes a little it becomes hard to sort of not reproduce those same siloed spaces again. So it's it's really challenging, but that is definitely one of our biggest issues around all of these things, exercise, but far more than that. Yeah. And as we, I, we touched on this idea that like, you know, our bodies are our like um, communicator with the world and mm-hmm. that, you know, taking a bit of a stance or, or at least like per, um, throwing, lobbing it out there that at a time when like people are really isolated, there are repercussions to that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we know that like we're, we are creatures who like self-regulate, but we also co-regulate. And I remember reading and I forget where it was, but there was like, most times in history when we were like in tribes and things, like most people, like their nervous system was like regulated at a very similar place, the whole group. Mm. So like, oh, interesting. And so like when one person changed or like upregulated, it was like a signal to the rest of the group in some way. And maybe we see that with mm-hmm. like other creatures or other mammals when they're like moving in like a pack that like they're all kind of resting in the same place. And then one per- and then when one creature like sees a predator or something happens, they all kind of mm-hmm. come alive and they would, and there was like this idea that well, it's like maybe similar for us in some way. And now reflecting on this idea that we could all be on the subway and there could be 300 people in on the subway and everybody is regulated into like a different place Mm -hmm. and and some of that is like reflective of this like even pre-covid kind of like way of isolating yeah right so that's so interesting so 
I guess like what we're talking about is like the problem of social atomization, right? Which Mm -hmm. became more intense during COVID, I think, as we were sort of like encouraged to see it as healthy to like wall ourselves off, which it was in a way, right? Mm -hmm. If like you want to prevent yourself from getting COVID, it's a like great idea not to go outside, right? But in terms of this much longer trajectory, which is about social media and it's about phones that we stare at, but it's also much longer than that. There were huge debates about this. I just read a great article by a guy named Jeffrey Rubel about this. It's not out yet, but um, there were huge debates in the eighties about the social costs of headphones that like, oh my God, if people walk around wearing headphones all the time, like we're going to lose a key part of the social fabric, you know? Mm -hmm. Interestingly, at the same time, they were very angry that like black and brown people were blasting boom boxes. So it's like, which one is it? Mm -hmm. Um, But um, um, you know, that kind of like uh, there's this famous book that from the early 2000s, Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, right, which argued that he used the, the idea of like the decline of bowling leagues in America as symbol as a symbol of the fact that like like togetherness and these like kind of community institutions were declining. So that's been happening for a really long time. Um, COVID certainly accelerated it and, of course, gave it this like virtuous sheen. Right. Whereas I think before, like people felt like kind of bad if they're out and they're like looking at their phones or like it felt like, oh, going out and being in the world is like a healthy thing to do. This really totally changed that. I mean, you're in New York too. I don't know if you remember those signs on the subway that were like bad and they would have uh, like a cartoon of two people talking to each other with no mask on. And then it was like better. And they were two people talking to each other with masks on. And it was like best. And it was a person with their face covered with a mask looking down on their phone. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, I get it. If like, imparting droplets is like the worst thing that can happen. Yes. But come on, have we not understood how bad it is to just be a person like locked into your own little screen? That's not health, you know? So I think that what you're talking about is that like longer trend. And yeah, I absolutely think um, that's a real, that's a real problem. And one that's like, kind of hard to talk about in this like late COVID era. Yeah. And like the, the plea, like, I mean, you're talking about like, physical education, but also in like an adult movement spaces for like things that involve like um, active participation with each other, not just being in the same room or being on a mat that's next to somebody, but like truly interacting with somebody, like having these nonverbal physical conversations uh, with people and how much they really matter in the big, like I I, I trained jujitsu down in, in, in Midtown and my jujitsu teacher at one point during a bell promotion said this really beautiful thing talking about jujitsu, why he cared about it. He didn't care as much about the accolades and owning an amazing gym, but that like jujitsu made us better at being with people. And this is what he was really speaking to is this like, the more we learn to interact with people, like the, the, the bigger repercussions it has into the ripples we send in the world. Totally. There's another great book that I reviewed recently called um, Hanging Out by Sheila Liming. And she really makes this case for like hanging out, like being together. And like she doesn't over glorify it. Like she talks about some really like messed up nights where she like got wasted and was wandering the streets with this guy she didn't know. And like everything was fine. But she's like or like really awkward interactions. There was even like, yeah, like it's not always perfect. But she talks about like taking that risk to be in space with other people, to not know exactly what's going to happen to not be able to like pick your playlist that you want to do your class at your time and your spot, but to be able to show up with people and have that like spontaneity and sometimes a little bit of danger too is really something that I think is so important in the world. And, you know, um, 
to your point, and this is another controversial thing, although maybe in a funnier way, but um, pickleball, I think, is is relevant to this. You know, pickleball is the fastest growing sport in America. My mom plays. She loves it. I've actually never played, which is crazy because I've like written about the politics around pickleball. But um, as much as like uh, I totally empathize with the people who are driven crazy with pickleball outside their windows. And in our neighborhood, there was a huge drama between in the park where my kids play at about getting the pickleballers out who are grownups. I think the pickleball movement is so good. Like it's multi-age, it's active, it's not screens. It's truly community-based in a lot of places. And like how freaking awesome, like people getting outside and coming together in community to like do something that has a pretty low barrier to entry. Like I think it's wonderful. And like, that's like, we don't have enough space. It's really actually pointing up our infrastructure issue, right? Like my kid should not be competing for space with growing up pickleball because he wants to shoot hoops. We should have a city that values that, you know, tear down those freaking empty office buildings in Midtown and like make us some basketball courts and pickleball courts. Like, you know, I think that like a society that values this kind of um, community interaction through movement um, and will make a public investment in it. But we have a lot of talk about that, but not a lot of action. And I think so often we keep reverting to the individual. Well, if you were motivated to go outside and like I run on the the west side all the time sometimes the line for tennis courts there i mean people have to sit there for hours to get a court most people don't have that time or god forbid they don't actually care that much about tennis that they want to spend their whole day doing it but they would play if it was like sort of logistically easier you know and so i think we gotta like set up a society where people can have where it's easier to find these movement opportunities right yeah and also um i talked to this guy maybe you've heard of the movement creative um, they're like a park. no. What is that? I only say it because you have kids and and the, yeah. they do like parkour classes for kids and they're oh like cool in the parks in New York City and his name's Jesse Danger. He's amazing. Um, I had him on here and I don't want to like speak too much about it because I don't remember exactly how he spoke to it, but it was like he was yeah. speaking with New York City Parks because it was like they want to do parkour, but there's a lot of like the parks telling you how to use the park. Right. Right. You know, and being like, how do we like give some opportunities to like play in these parks that is like not clearly defined on how to use the parks. And I think there was some sort of conversations he was trying to have about like, hey, maybe some signs that give recommendations for like ways that you can play on things that aren't like the orthodox. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, this is so, this is just like a really important part of like public life and also thinking about who gets to play in what spaces, how, I mean, this reminds me of a piece that got, that was in the New York times. Like, I feel like it was like late 2021 or so, but it was about um like a kind of makeshift outdoor gym in playground in a, in a playground in Harlem that this guy had set up and he kind of brought out his own equipment and he would put it under a tarp at night. And it was like, um they would use the monkey bars and stuff to like do like real training. And they talked about how like, you know, there, this is a community where like, there's a lot of unhealthy distractions to kids from drugs, gangs, whatever. And this was like this really great space where adults and kids were using it. And he got shut down because you're not allowed to store any equipment overnight. And he had like some kettlebells and cables and stuff like that, that he was keeping there. And like that to me, I'm like, oh, 
what a missed opportunity. Like here's someone showing initiative, using public space in a way that's open to the community. And yeah, he is running afoul of the letter of the law a little bit, but that just seems like an unfair or like an unjust um, way to kind of police that, you know? Yeah. And I mean, when you say something was also like multi-generational, I feel like in movement and fitness spaces, and I don't know, I don't remember, recall if it's something that's in the book, but like, it is something that's gone away that like, there is like a division between like, not just like um, race and gender, but also like age. Totally. And so that's something actually with the fitness world that I think is really fascinating to think about because on the one hand, gyms and the fitness industry are always selling youth, right? Like there's no two ways about it. So much of what they've been selling for decades is like, we'll keep you looking young. And that has created a lot of like exclusivity around age and a lot of like really not very nice pressures to like, you know, continue to like dye your hair and look like you have, look like you quote unquote, never had a baby and like kind of elevate people who might not have expertise, but who are like 25 and have like the hot bodies, conventionally hot bodies. Right. On the other hand, the graying of the gym demographic is very true and has actually driven the growth of the industry in a lot of ways that people over 55 are people who are big spenders on exercise. And that is, I think is really fascinating because like the boomers are, I would say the first generation who are expected to and do regularly exercise until they die, like well into their seventies and eighties. And it's been interesting to see in gyms, how the industry kind of reacts to that. We've moved away in a lot of ways from the kind of like, this is a silver sneakers class, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like old people are over there. And I sometimes go to classes and like there are people, I'm 44, but there are people who are like, 10, 15 years older than me who are like absolutely crushing it. And funnily, I sometimes go to classes where I'm the oldest one and I'm like, please, these like 24 year olds like cannot keep up with me, you know? And I think it's, um, I think like it, those are contradictory things, but I think there's like something really interesting happening where there is this continued emphasis on like selling youth and appearance, but there's this like huge gym grow, gym going demographic, which is older than any we've ever seen. And I do think that they are helping to shift that messaging because so many of them are not showing up because they want washboard abs at 50 or 60 or 40, honestly, even they're showing up because they're like, I want to be able to lift my kids. Um, I want to be able to like power through my whole day of like um, commitments and social activities and like live a long and healthy life. And so I do think it's been nice to see how a lot of the discourse in fitness is not only about that fountain of youth stuff, but it's about longevity and functional fitness and flexibility and agility um, over time. And I think that's great, you know? Yeah. There's, there's one thing that you mentioned, I think in your book, um, but I've read Mm -hmm. a few things recently, but like, and it's worth noting because, you know, again, we're talking about like multi-generational, we're talking a lot about kids and we're like a culture that is leaning heavily, like not just professionally, but fitness and movement wise into like things that look and probably quite literally are some form of specialization Mm -hmm. and the repercussions of specialization, especially with like youth and youth sports which is a huge i mean we talked a little bit about like you know like what does movement look like if we're not talking we're not trying to make a ton of money on it and there's also a lot Mm -hmm. wrapped in that as well 
Oh, yes. As a mom of two student athletes, I know exactly what this is like. My, my And full disclosure, so I have an 11-year-old daughter who plays ice hockey, like pretty seriously travel ice hockey. I have a son who's almost 14 who um, now like basketball is really his thing, but he's like been involved in a bunch of different sports, including the very organized, like he did travel hockey too for a while, but also like he's a skateboarder and a surfer and like very outside of all of this world kind of sports. Ah, so, I mean, yeah, the youth sports situation is related to the PE conversation that we were having. And big picture, I think, is honestly kind of a bummer. Like we're in a situation right now where if kids show promise and interest or sometimes not even interest, but promise and skill and their parents have the money for it, you can specialize, specialize, specialize like from the age of like four or five years old. And um, that is, I think, I mean, I think it can be great for like the subgroup of kids who like showing a lot of talent and really, really love it. Like, that's nice. But on the other hand, I think one, there are a lot of kids who I think are under a lot of pressure and who and who exclude many other activities from their life, physical or otherwise, because they're pressured to specialize so early. Um, I also think one thing that we're seeing is that this kind of like pay to play elite sports world is actually sucking some of the fun and the spirit out of like school sports teams, right? And so um, I, I live in the city, so it's like a little bit different here, but some friends who live in the suburbs, like the suburb where I grew up, and they talk about how like, you know, some of the like soccer, baseball teams, like sports where there is a lot of like club sports and private activity, like the school games, like aren't that meaningful or anything anymore, the school teams, because the good, the quote unquote good kids like go off into these other worlds. And and I think that that's really important. That's really unfortunate because it is just another example of this kind of stratification and um, an inequality that gets reproduced in these ways. On the other hand, like for each individual family, like, you know, I'm I am paying for my daughter to do like club hockey. It's the only way she can play hockey as a girl in New York City. So like, you know, I do think like it's really hard. There's nothing like parenthood to make you like really hold your principles up to the light and be like, how much do I believe this? And what am I going to do for my kid? And I try to be really honest about those struggles because it is a struggle. And I, I I am not always an ideological purist. Like, yeah, there's a part of me that's like, you know what? It's wrong that like this hockey program exists. It expects parents to drop everything and drive everywhere and do all these things. Part of me is like, and I shall not participate in that. But you know what? When I see my little girl, this is the best thing in her life. Like, like by far of all, I mean, she has like other good things in her life, but like, yeah. this is the thing that lights her up and she loves it. I'm like, if I can make that happen, you better believe I'm going to do it. So I, I am not a perfect person. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but it's, a, it's, it's, it is like a, a, a tragedy of kind of how it's, it's all set up. Like, I mean, I, you know, I follow I used to watch more regularly, but I used to watch real sports on HBO and they did a lot of, mm -hmm. of, of segments on youth sports specialization. They talked about like, you know, overuse injuries, kids who are starting to play like, you know, year round soccer, needing like full, like knee reconstructive surgeries at nine years old and things like that. And then they did this one and I've brought it up so many times, but it's to me, it's like so reflective of like the, the value of like not specializing, not just for like the, the, the sake of the body, but for the sake of like, kind of like our innate intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, is that like in Norway, I think it, they, they don't allow any specialization. They can only do non-competitive play of like these games up until 
they're 13 years old or something. Wow. And it's also like, I think it's a socialist country. So nobody has to pay. They all, they just get to show up and they just get to play. And they're just like, yeah, there's no score. You want to ride skis. We're going to take you on the ski hill. If you want to kick a ball, you kick a ball. And then at 13, that's when they start introducing this like potential for competitiveness and also specialization that Mm. like, and they've developed, they've developed resilient bodies because they haven't been just doing like the same things over and over. And yeah, there's a, I, I see that there's just like a tragedy in, in some of this. Right. Well, for like specific kids, I also just think the fact that like, because the fact that like you're not practicing all these other modalities because you have to lock in so early to one, it both like can have real tax on your body, as you're mentioning, like kids having knee surgery at nine years old, or like some of the gymnasts have like a lot of this kind of stuff too, not to mention football, which is a whole other thing. But it also, I think kind of like in some ways, like kneecaps, I guess, to kids' sense of what's possible. Like my daughter, who's 11, like I said, I'm really good at hockey. And she does, she does gymnastics once a week. She does, she's on like an intramural basketball team. So she's like, I'm trying to like keep the multi, you know, the kind of like lighthearted dimension of this alive. But um, some of her hockey friends play lacrosse. And I was like, you know, if you wanted us to like pick up a used lacrosse trick, you could throw it around and see what it's like. And she's like, I guess she goes, but how do you even like start a new sport at this point? At this point, she's 11. Like, you know, and she's, I was like, oh my God, like I both am horrified and I totally understand why you think that, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the world, unfortunately, that she's growing up in, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's so hard. And then we, and then inevitably become, become adults who almost feel like we can't learn anything new once we are deemed an adult. Right, right, totally. I mean, that's some of the most refreshing things. This goes beyond fitness, but like I do in my life have to do with like letting go of the fact that I should only do things I'm good at or that I know how to do and that actually like great things come from like being very uncomfortable in new environments. And I mean, this is the handstand thing, which terrifies me. I've embarked on this new thing called Daf Yomi, which is like the daily reading of Talmud. I am not, um, I which is like the Jewish interpretive text of the Torah, but I am not religious. I grew up Jewish, but like, very not observant, but a friend and I got into this. So like every day we read a page of the Talmud, which like the whole world of people who read Talmud's doing, and we like interpret it and we don't know shit really, but we're trying to figure out these like big philosophical precepts together. And it's just very refreshing to use aspects of your mind or your body. I think that you're not accustomed to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we forget, I mean, there's so much research now about like our capacity to like learn throughout our entire life, you know, like, uh, you know, yeah. like neuroplasticity and like, it's such like a, a hot word right now, or at least it was totally. a few years ago, but it's like, it's all anyone wants to talk about, but like, we can be learning up until the end. And it's exciting. And then it also creates pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that's actually something like that is actually very related to the book is like, you know, as we move away from like, what is life? Well, life is like not getting polio or not getting like your face blown off in World War One. Like as we move away from like that notion of bare survival to a much more kind of like fulsome, exciting, like full version of what health and a fulfilled life looks like, that's beautiful in so many ways because it opens up opportunities to do all these things. We know our brains are capable of so much. On the other hand, it actually sets up a lot of pressure to also so like, are you living your best life? Are you continuing to learn every day? Are you, you know what I mean? Like, and I think like sometimes almost to your point before, like 
there's uh, sometimes I almost just have like a, a nostalgia or a yearning in some ways of like a simpler moment when I didn't have to be constantly bettering myself, you know, even though I am kind of like bought into that. So yeah, it's complicated. Well, I'm curious because I mean, you've, you've, you've touched a little bit on like uh, what your life looks like now and also like navigating being a parent and, you know, teaching fitness, like attending classes. And, and unlike me, I mean, like my journey has changed immensely and there's like a lot of humility in that change. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like how yours has changed, maybe and also spe- especially in the period of kind of like writing this book, like what that relationship to like the movement and fitness world is, has, has come to be for you. Yeah. So big picture. I mean, I alluded to it a little bit before I was like not athletic at all, at all, very intimidated by anything sports or movement or dance related growing up. I was so humiliated in PE class that I got this out to go do an independent study in fitness, which in 1995 was like either personal training, which my parents were like, that's for rich people, no way, or group fitness, which we had like um, access to because we went to this community center. So I found group fitness. Well, I was like, I don't know what this is. It seems kind of like a sport because you're like sweating and, you know, I'm like building muscle and all this, but it's definitely not anything I encountered in PE class. And I love it. And I am embarked on like this sort of like side life to my like very academic path of like just loving freaking gyms and group fitness. And like every time I could, I like worked the desk at this 24 hour world gym in New York so that I could get do free classes. And like, I would like find out where things were happening and go take classes with like some MTV trainer, like just to be able to be around that. Like, I just love that. Um, And then I moved out to California for graduate school and I saw people training for marathons that like didn't look like any runners that I'd ever seen before. And I'm like, well, if that like, you know, I was like 24 or something, but I'm like, if that lady who's like 50 look is doing this, maybe I could try it too. So I started running marathons and I just sort of started like really conceiving of myself in a way I never had before, but like as a kind of like fitnessy person or an a physically active person, moved back to New York at that in 2005 I was still writing my dissertation for my PhD, but I was like dissertating from New York City. So I would go back and forth. And by that point, I really identified as a feminist. And so I had this issue where I loved the gym world, but the world of it that I liked, which was like all this like group exercise, I knew as a feminist was like so profoundly messed up. Like I'm like, oh, it's like energy and fun and strength and community. But they're also like ladies, bikini seasons around the corner. Who was bad this weekend? Really got to blast those thighs. Like, and I kind of like, I felt really bad because I'm like, I love this, but it's like so terrible, you know? And so I had this real like kind of internal struggle. Anyway, I went I went to a trial uh, membership at Equinox um, and I took class from a woman who became my greatest teacher and friend, Patricia Moreno. And she had come out of that kind of aerobics world, but she was a real seeker. Like she didn't have a lot of formal education, but she had been in an accident and then she discovered yoga and meditation. And like, she was really like early out of the gate to combine fitness with mindfulness. So I walk into her class and I'm very skeptical because the description is like spoken affirmations help you visualize like whatever, you know, very like woo woo. And I'm like, okay. So I go to this class 
it like blew my mind. Like it was all of that fun and the sweat and the challenge of these group exercise classes, but we're yelling affirmations while we're exercising. So we're like punching and saying like, I am strong, like, you know, doing like speed bag, like imitation and being like, I am powerful. And it's like 60 people in a room. And first I'm like, well, it's just the cardio of using my lungs, which is so great. And then I'm like, holy shit, I am like speaking into existence these great things like discipline, strength, empowerment. It's so awesome. And so I became like a true believer. I was like following her around, taking her classes. She died last year, which is such a loss to the me and to the world. The book is dedicated to her. You might've seen on the first page, but, um, she really like changed my life. And then she started training instructors in 2007. She's like, you should do the training. You're like in every class, you're in the front. And I still was holding on to this like old idea stupidly that like, oh, no, 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 no. I am a serious intellectual. Like I'm not going to like be a fitness instructor, even though I wanted nothing more than to be a fitness instructor. And she's like, Natalia, you can be more than one thing. And what's the worst thing you do? You like do this training and then you like never do anything with it again. And I was like, yes. Okay, great. And so I I like sign up for it. And then before long, it was great. I like auditioned for Equinox. I had like, I was teaching 10 classes a week. I like, so I was an ambassador for a bunch of brands. Like it really kind of blew up. And so I don't teach as much anymore, Um, but it was a huge thing for me to kind of like occupy that space is not just someone who could exercise, which was not me before, not just as an enthusiastic participant, but also to kind of like teach this practice, which is so important to me. And I really expanded my sense of like what's possible, you know? And I think this book comes out a lot from that, of this sense of like, you don't have to be one thing. You can, the best things come from like integrating a variety of passions and like thinking about new paradigms. And so I hope that I've brought some of that spirit which Patricia embodied so much into the writing of this book. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, um, it almost sounds like a somatic therapy. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think it has aspects of that. And, you know, there is a kind of like scientific basis for it. There's like positive psychology and like different things about neurolinguistic programming and like the way that you can like use the heightened state of physical state of exercise to kind of talk yourself effectively into, into um, new mindsets. And so, yeah, all of that is, uh, it was just like really powerful, but it's funny. You mentioned before, like my fitness experience, how is writing this book changed it? Well, I continue to be like a really excited consumer of um, and participant in like all kinds of fitness. I'll like try anything. It does remind me a little bit of like, I used to be a waitress and for a long time, it like wasn't relaxing to go to restaurants because, you know, like you see the person taking your order and you're like, oh my God, she didn't enter the drinks. And is she going to remember their apps? And like, you're too in your head about it. So like, I, it's hard for me to go and just like be in a class. Cause I'm always like, my God, we did the left. Are we going to do the right? Why isn't she doing adjustments? That girl needs help. Like, you know, so I'm a little bit like that, but I still really enjoy it. And there's so many great teachers in New York. And, you know, I also like, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's just, I, I really, I'll always love this world. I think. Nice. Well, you said that you still teach sometimes. Yeah. So I teach like, um, basically I tend because I travel a lot to like speak and stuff. I tend to do like either like private things, like someone will hire me or invite me to do a one-off event, or um, I'll do residencies. And actually, if any of your listeners are in New York, including you, um, it hasn't been formally announced yet, but in October, I'll be every Monday night around Flatiron, 7.30 p.m. It's going to be an open guest list, like while supplies last, but um, I would love for you to come try this class with me. I will totally come. 
Yeah. Yay! Yeah, I will be Great. there 100% for sure. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. So it's there. really fun. Amazing. Cool. Can't is, wait. Is there anything else that uh, you have coming up or, or, or the best ways for people to contact you? Um, I would say like, reach out to me on social media, like Twitter is, I don't know what the hell it is anymore, but, um, Instagram is probably the best place. I'm at Natalia Petrozella. I have a weekly podcast, which is called past present with two other historians where we turn hindsight into foresight. Um, and yeah, check out the book fit nation and yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. This was such a treat. Thank you. Likewise. It was so fun. I really enjoyed it.